Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're going to make it out of here, we got to work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. This is why you watch 7 News at 5. This breaking story is happening as we speak. To get breaking news from the alert desk. When I know about it, you'll know about it first. So you're always connected with what's happening now, only on 7 News at 5. Hi guys, it's Carolina Hidalgo from Last Podcast Network. I co-host a weekly podcast called Movie Sign with the Mads with Frank Conniff and Trace Bellew, the original mad scientist from the hit cult TV show, Mystery Science Theater 3000. That's right, TV's Frank and Dr. Clayton Forrester, along with myself, spend each week discussing and thoroughly dissecting a movie we've recently seen. The premise of our show is very complicated. I hope you can pay attention. We come in once a week and talk about a movie. Okay, I hope you could keep up with that. Past episodes included classics like Taxi Driver, The Godfather, and Sunset Boulevard to our live show recordings of The Shining, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to newer releases like The Shape of Water, Hereditary, Get Out, and Mandy. Some we like, some we don't. We agree, we disagree. But in the end, it's all about movies and you, the viewer, and your suggestions. The viewer, no, it doesn't come through that way. It's on the radio. It's on a podcast. A podcast, and it's free. There's no real continuity between the episodes, so click on the movie episode you'd like to hear about. Check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you can find podcasts, or just look for us on lastpodcastnetwork.com under shows. Thanks, everyone, and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, it's your super indie but also children music making wizard this week, Holden McNeely. And it's me, your googa goofy, silly, wackadookie, funny comedy. Death will come for us all, and that is serenely beautiful. <laughs> Bruiser Jake, hey, how you doing? Oh my god, and this week we're doing an episode on They Might Be Giants, and this is a Patreon-funded episode courtesy of Claire Walters, aka Nuka Babe, a friend to me via Twitch chat, and her promotion is just for my community specifically. She wanted to promote Lady Death Squad, uh, as well as uh, D&D on the Chop Shop Network, uh, all great stuff. Check it out. Uh, Lady Death Squad, shout outs to uh, Cam Star, shout outs to Cookies by Amanda. Quick question What in God's fucking name is Lady Death Squad? <laughs> uh, some fun ladies that like to get together and play video games. And oh, it's super fun. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's a fantastic time. So, anyways, Claire, thank you so much for your Patreon donation. And here we go on with the show. Let's talk about it. They might be giants. I feel like, okay. Let's start, I will start with this. Um, I feel like they might be giants. Have always uh, definitely one of those entities in all of this stuff that's been in the periphery for me. Like they've just always been around, but I've never been like specifically like 
super deep dove into them. You know what I mean? But they've just, I think probably the first time I ever heard them was definitely uh, Istanbul on Tiny Tiny Toons, Tiny Toons Adventures. And I never even realized like it, it was a, that it was connected to, they might be giants. And I feel like later when I was getting into indie music, like I heard it again and like birdhouse of my soul and all that good stuff. And was like, Oh, this is cool. And I definitely listened to like a, this American life, a, a, a segment about their dial in network, dial a song which we'll talk about and just always heard all these great things about this band and how interesting they are and how cool but never like really sat down and really dove into the material like I have in preparation for this episode and it's fantastic I I had such a good time I I just listening to so much good music Uh, Lexi and I would just I would have it on in the background while we were working um, in the afternoon and and we would every now and again just like share a laugh about like a weird lyric that popped up or something like that. There's just so much whimsy and fun and and um, hilarity. And as you said as well, amongst these deeper concepts, and I think that's what made them so fascinating. And um, th- their career is just, I mean, unbelievable, prolific. And there's just so much music here. It's really incredible. <laughs> I'm amazed that. This is this is your energy this week because um, <laughs> my energy was a deep, almost sensory consuming time travel back to high school. Okay, so you had a connection. I fell hard for they might be giants. Awesome, good, and I feel like for a lot of people, like I spent more time like researching they might be giants and then just like meditating on what it means to be a like transitional creature that is like the human development uh-huh like i would like you do not understand how much this band was like a spark and a comfort to me during what i would consider just like my most confused lonely shittiest like times in my life hmm. see i was listening i think uh, i was like on that nirvana and all that kind of stuff during this time and i think they were too on their face to like cute and quirky for me at that time you know what I mean I needed well, like is, darker is... meaner music and actually though I feel like they were hitting on uh, uh, subject material in their at least adult albums that is maybe even more getting to the core of like d- depression so, and sadness than even those other bands there's a stereotype lyrically. about they might be giants and their fans uh, and sure and what I want like I think the thing that I was trying to wrap my head around their names are all Jake and um, <laughs> they like hats and plaid shirts um, and wear glasses and are Jewish hey, some of them are named <laughs> Daniel <laughs> and it's that here's here was my like third eye opening statement and that they might be giants is like a stepping stone to a deeper world of emotions and sound and feelings when you're still at an age that maybe you're not ready for those feelings yet. Mm, And the kind of ironic detachment and catchy pop hooks and kind of goofy sense of humor kind of just eases you into it when you're not ready to confront that. And I dare say for a large portion of uh, the awkward teens of the world, Getting into They Might Be Giants is like more honest to who they are than like trying to put up goth affectations or like mm-hmm. trying to be like a suburban punk or like trying to be, uh, you know, getting into like gangster rap. Like They Might Be Giants more accurately captures that specific nervous, weird, wondrous time so- than other like kind of postures that you could put on. So are you saying that They Might Be Giants are the Pixar's inside out of uh, music? <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. In a world where you're beginning to feel different things all at the same time. You know, one of the most interesting things to me for They Might Be Giants, before we get into the real history and everything, is that before them, it seems like they were kind of some of the first musical acts to to defy genre um, in their music, um, album to album, and and really just play, go all over the place and, and be one music style, one track, and a completely other music style, the next track, and, you know, going from rock to to country to funk to, and they just, ne- they just were, and now I feel like that's way more commonplace mm-hmm. in music in general, but it is fun to see the stamp that different bands can make that you never really realized until you did some studying on it that they, oh, they actually were like bringing this to the game first in a lot of ways. This is, okay, I'm, I'm just dropping all of my hot my hot thoughts. Do it, dude. Bring These it at me, steaming man. thoughts is uh, one of the things that, they, that made uh, They Might Be Giants so singularly unique for their era is that they went ahead and did all this experimentation and did all of this kind of like uh, play with recording, with instrumentation, with uh, styles that nowadays is more commonplace because actually putting things down onto tape is easier. Mm-hmm. And but like they committed to the frivolity, and that created a unique energy where you know if you're going to get a band together, if you're going to write a song, if you're going to do all this stuff, you're going to do it quote unquote correctly, right? Or, or, or the whole band will create this eclectic sound that will put you on a certain path, music genre wise, right? Mm-hmm. Tonally and everything. Whereas if it's just you and a drum machine and whatever the fuck you want, and your weird nerd friend, yeah, then you're just gonna experiment and play and that yeah a hundred percent and i love that like fundamentally the drum machine was really such a big part of their early albums to the degree that um I, there was one story that i think flans uh, john flansburgs uh, talked about i believe it was him who was like we were about to start working on our next album and a dude from a different band was like whoa whoa dude wait because they're coming out with a new one in like a month <laughs> and it's got all this new shit on it so just wait don't even start working on that album yet because that's how instrumental fundamental technology and specifically in drum machines was but let's let's okay let's introduce what? our two um uh-huh. What is your favorite They Might Be Giants song? The one that you listened, or you know what? Uh, the one that you ended up listening to the most this week and the one that you loved the most growing up? Um, I would say probably Birdhouse in Your Soul. And then I Amazing. would almost say Birdhouse in Your Soul. Like, I really love that song, though. I think that there's so many things going on in it. Um, it, it, it's so catchy and yet so like trying not, like not like at the same time it's so fascinating we actually somebody donated for us to do karaoke on birdhouse in your soul um on a uh, twitch stream a couple weeks ago and it was like hilarious it's so who hard. watches over it's you? so hard to sing that song like it is just it's so full of craziness but in doing um uh shit i the album off the top of my head it's the space album um apollo 18 apollo 18 right apollo 18 that track broken up into fingertips fingertips blew is my amazing. mind fingertips cracking up that laughing. was the main one where i put it on and lexi and i were just like dying laughing like every so it is um a Come on. it's like it's Come like it's one track broken up into 18 tracks because they wanted to utilize and again and technology is always going to be a, a part of the they might be giant story and so in this case they wanted to utilize the random setting on a cd player this was kind of new at the time so if you put that album on random this one song that was broken up into like 18 different like 
20 second tracks essentially it would just com- drastically alter the way that the album sounded and flowed and every single little track within this one piece is this completely different <laughs> hilarious concept and um i loved it. i can't remember any of the single concepts off the top of my head but there were just so many funny thoughts and moments all throughout that uh, fingertips thing that I was like, oh, this is amazing. How have I never heard this before? Uh, It was so good and so funny and so playful. And it reminded me of the kind of things that I like to do musically when I'm just playing, you know, by myself, with myself, holding my penis, just gently just stroking it while I'm making music. And then you just say to yourself, What's that blue thing <laughs> yes! doing here? <laughs> oh, God. That whole thing is just so funny and so inventive and ex- uh, just great. And so anyways, yeah, I would definitely say that. You know, Istanbul I liked a lot, too. Obviously, that would be the other mm-hmm. clear one, you know. Um, of course, Particle Man I'd, is great. I've grown to dislike Particle Man. I feel like it really, like... The fact that that was such a I'm shocked that thing. that's as big of a deal as it is. Yeah, it should not be. Right. It should not it's be. It's just a There's, silly, yeah. Devo-ish, kind of goofy. Barely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Anna Ng is one that hit me a uh-huh. lot. It's kind of unfortunate that my two, like, two of my favorite songs as a teenager, yeah, it was Anna Ng and Across the Sea, and turns out both of them are just about pining for some random Asian woman you've never met. That's (laughs) going to therapy over that one now that I made that connection. But uh, this is so weird. Meet James Ensor was the... Yes, 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 yeah. That for some reason. What? what do you know what album that's off of? Off I, the top of your head. That's that's the problem. Is Dude. I grew, I grew up liking them in the. That's the thing. These guys were so quick to there get all their shit online. So many albums, man. It is. There are. Tw- I mean, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say there are twenty studio albums. That's <laughs> fucking crazy. Uh, fingertips was the bane of every iPod owner uh-huh, because yeah. if you did put in, uh, <laughs> you'd be listening to just like the whole thing on shuffle. Everything, you know, everything's going fine. You're listening to I don't know DMX, and then out of nowhere, you'd just be like, to, yeah. yeah. Finger tail. Yeah. Finger <laughs> uh, okay, so let us begin our tale of the Johns. That's right. Our main two characters refer to as the Johns. First of all, there's John Flansburg, nicknamed Flans or Flansy. Uh, he was born in Lincoln, Mass., to a prominent Boston architect, Earl Flansburg, and his mother, Polly Flansburg, who founded and is president of Boston by Foot, a nonprofit that gives guided walking tours of historical sites in Boston. Seems like some pretty sweet parents, right? And while going to Lincoln Sudbury Regional High School, he meets a man named John Linnell or, uh, yeah, we're going with Linnell, okay? So if that's wrong, you're going to be mad all throughout this episode. So John Linnell um, and Flansburg become friends. Then Flansburg goes off to school at George Washington University, then Antioch College and Pratt Institute, getting an arts degree. Um, and during this time, he's learning how to play guitar. He's, you know, getting into music. So Linnell, Linnell is born in NYC, and uh, his father was a psychiatrist. He was heavily inspired. Okay, this is one of my favorite things I discovered doing 
this episode. Mm-hmm. He is heavily inspired by my new favorite album, which is called Songs of the Pogo. Oh by my Walt God, Kelly. yes, it's amazing. It's amazing. The parsnoops. <laughs> I sent it to Marcus, who fell in love with it as well. Oh my God. I was God. like, dude, I found the perfect album for you because he loves this kind of stuff. Also, if you if you can find uh, tracks from this, it's dude, amazing. It's, it's, it's on it's, Spotify. It's a straight line to it's, They Might Be Giants. It's awesome. Yeah, and um, uh, so anyway, so this is, uh, I should explain a little more. This is Walt Kelly, who uh, was a cartoonist who did the strip Pogo about Pogo the Possum and Albert the Alligator, which was a huge success. We'll have to talk more about Pogo when we do our Bone episode. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And this is a collection of single... It's very like Bone, if that's maybe a good reference for you if you're into comic books and stuff. This is, It's a collection... This album is a collection of sing-along by the piano songs from the pre-war era that is just awesome just bursting with energy silliness witty wordplay loaded with puns it's just fun it's 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 funny it's it's so they might be giants and there's even a song that you should totally listen to off of it that the they might be giants ended up using as a cover that they would do in random live shows and it's called lines upon a tranquil brow it's just playful fun it's so they might be giants i have listened to this album like a few times this week it is my new like favorite go-to it's just great everything about it i i I just absolutely it's so funny because i'm learning about this other band whose music i'm totally appreciating but i kind of keep wanting to just go back to songs of the pogo because it's just so fucking good and it is on spotify and it's fantastic um uh so anyways he's heavily inspired by that which makes a lot of sense and while young his family moves to lincoln massachusetts uh which is by the way described as culturally removed upper middle class rural suburban town in the heart of liberal america which sounds like the absolute perfect fertile ground for they might be giants oh man i wonder why their why their music resonated with me so much right wait you're telling me these two (laughs) these two (laughs) introverted uh nerds and upper class uh, upbringing uh, made music that I liked. Weird. Yeah, exactly. Right. So they end up uh, or when according to legend, they mm-hmm. first met when Linnell, yes. who let's be honest here, uh, looks like he was born of European royalty and has been a sickly looking man <laughs> since he was a child, uh, was hospitalized. And uh, because he was uh, a sophomore when uh, Flansburg was a freshman and the freshman class went to visit him and the entire uh, event, as you can imagine, was weird and awkward because they just had to visit the sick nerd kid in his hospital room. But Flansburg and Linnell hit it off and they started collaborating and doing like all the creative fun shit that two nerds will do. Uh, They started like recording uh, novelty songs on their like tape track players. Linnell is a... uh, was a cartoonist and they drew like weird like anti-Reagan cartoons to get not Reagan uh whatever like anti-Nixon cartoons together they were just friends they were friends who goofed around and just killed time and back when there wasn't the internet apparently while working at uh, at the school newspaper together uh, the whole oh, they were also school newspaper nerds yeah they, you know these nerds that was a lot of how they got together was like both working on working at the newspaper at school and apparently that whole little collective what uh, re- greatly informed their sensibilities artistically and their sense of humor moving forward. And it was one of those where it was kind of hilarious, like definitely from the sounds of it, from what I read, like the student body, like 
totally generally hated the newspaper of course <laughs> it was just so oddball and goofy and weird and like they were you know clearly like they were only doing it for themselves it had no sports section it had like it was just like fuck off everybody we're just they were like it was the band kids got to make the newspaper and had full creative control over it and then they got to skip class to use the mimeograph machine yeah. <laughs> like just everything that makes you hate the nerds so yeah uh, they would end up being becoming co-editors of the paper and uh that they you know and working on home recording projects together and stuff like that they even played in a uh or or, i'm sorry linnell played in a high school band called the bags uh before he went off to university of massachusetts amherst but dropped out to pursue music he ends up getting into a semi-successful new wave band called the mundanes have you did you look up footage i did not have you it is is hilarious new wave is it's just down the middle new wave with a little bit of that like uh huey lewis like they weren't full uh full like flock of seagulls Uh uh-huh there was like a huey lewis like bar band edge to them okay but like there in the corner with like shitty dyed blonde hair just not moving in front of a synthesizer is john linnell yeah he's playing keyboards and sax in this band um and he wasn't super happy in the band he didn't have a very big role in the band it's kind of like you said very background his entire job was just going (laughs) like that was that's all he's doing and like you said they're very middle of the road so they're failing to get a record deal they have some representation they get a little way Oh, uh, there's isn't that fun when you're doing just well enough that you can't quit, but not well enough that you can uh, keep doing it? The worst. Oh, it's fun. I love it. So anyway, Patreon.com slash Wizbrew, by the way. <laughs> Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. <laughs> We're doing well. We're doing fine. <laughs> what are you talking about? We're doing great. I, it's my baby needs ear medicine. <laughs> and by baby Don't I mean Don't refer to your penis as your baby, please, what? Jake. What? What? I'm sorry. Anyway. <laughs> That's two penis references today. I don't know what's going on with me. Uh, This is a... Oh, okay. Well... We'll get uh, into it. Hot thought. (laughs) Hot thought number three. (laughs) Another thing that makes They Might Be Giants so uh, attractive to a very specific kind of nerd, besides the uh, definite uh, suburban timidity that resonates throughout every song, is... uh, they never talk about sex. Yes. They never. Or say words like fuck or shit or dog piss or, um, you know, big fun Frank. They talk about kiss. Girl. They, a couple of songs, they'll talk about a kiss. The like Even even their most romantic song is like uh, Everyone's Your Friend in New York City. Uh, that's just a cover. Like ah. these people are expressing the full gamut of human emotions while just completely leaving out. The entirety of sexual sexuality. Yeah. Uh, they have more breakup songs than they have, like, falling in love songs. Right. And, again, if you're kind of a late bloomer and you're kind of growing up and you're kind of in that in-between teen puberty I would say thing, I was frightened of sex for a while. They, yeah. <laughs> As a kid, I was just straight up scared about or, it. Or, or this is more specific. Though like, I desperately wanted to, like, be in a loving relationship, but I was, like, terrified of what that actually would entail. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. That's yeah. and uh but when you're at that age and all the songs in the radio are about like getting down on the dance floor and going into the bathroom and laying down the pipe, you don't really know what the fuck that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know what that fuck that is. But uh hearing a weird dirge about how like when you're dead you might become a bag of groceries and you'll never uh procrastinate again. Like that'll hit you because you're still like you're still ha- you still have feelings. Exactly, exactly. Um so so going back to 
this this origin story we've been we've been painting for you all. The Johns, they end up setting up. Uh, they, so this is totally coincidence, right? They end up, according to completely legend, completely coincidentally moving into the same apartment building on the exact same day in 1981 because they had used the same person. I mean, it's not super coincidental because they had a mutual friend. I mean, it mm-hmm. happens, right? They knew each other in high school, had a mutual friend in Brooklyn. They were trying to get there, and they. It, but still, the fact that it was the exact same day and everything's kind of nuts. And when they did move in together, they start helping each other with solo projects. Linnell said about this, we had a whole lot of conversations about how we were going to do this. And I think it started with one of us wanting to get a band together and the other one wanting to do more high tech duo thing. And then we figured out a way to do something we both liked using just a reel to reel tape recorder playing straight through. And so they would create and record a rhythm section and then they would perform over the rhythm section. Again, super lo-fi. This is bedroom music recording. This is, you know, just experimental and... Even one of them, I think he was still doing the mundane. I think like straight edge mountain goats is this aesthetic yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And Linnell is still kind of in the mundanes. And I know that Flansburg, even when they were working on this stuff together, he in his head was like, oh, this is just for fun. This is just extra because this guy already has a band that's like making moves and doing all this cool stuff. And so he never thought that they were really going to become a thing or anything. And it was just fun experimentation. Uh, their first song was Space Suit, which was in, uh, initially titled I. I'll remember Third Street and was so basic. It was actually written by Flansburg to incorporate chords his music teacher taught him. So it was like that kind of like that base level of songwriting. Their first show was in August of 1982 in Central Park under the name El Grupo de Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah. This is a <laughs> fun cook crossover with the real world. Uh, the <laughs> concert was a benefit for the Sandinistas because I don't know if you knew this. Uh, America has a weird contentious relationship with Southern American socialists. No. What are you talking about, Yeah, it turns out, it turns out it's a thing that happens a lot. Jake, you so crazy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've just been on Twitter too long and my brain is melting. <laughs> Jake, it's, it's it's true. Actually, I'm seeing driblets of brain matter come out of his ear holes right it's now. Like it's like runny bubblegum. Um, so don't get on Twitter anymore, kids. That's what all the old these old men are telling you right Honestly, now. Honestly, you will, your life will be better. Your life will be so much better. I just post like the things that I've got going on. You know what I mean? And block out the rest of the noise. So they, of course, didn't like the name, right? But they did. It's a horrible name. I'm so glad they changed the name. They had a ventriloquist friend, though. This is so... How fucking nerdy! Cutesy indie. And and so, like, indie No, 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 no. Ventriloquist is not cutesy indie. Like, a ballerina would be cutesy indie. A magician is not Not a magician. A magician is still nerdy. I'm trying to think. A bluegrass, a banjo court, a barbershop quartet would be cutesy indie. Okay. That Ventriloquist is solid gutter sucking nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so they talk to this ventriloquist. Ventriloquists friend. are like for people that don't have the fucking athleticism for juggling. I am so I'm not even going to attempt to defend ventriloquism. <laughs> I will say I think puppetry is fun, but it's just the whole mouth thing. I like the Muppet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like hold it above your head and and talk for it. And we, why? But don't do the weird mouth thing. It just throws me off. The I know it's you. I know it's you. <laughs> Anyways, um, 
So uh, they didn't. Uh, so they talked to the ventriloquist friend, and he has a list of names he's considering for his own act. And one of those names is they might be giants, which was from a 1971 film about a man who retreats into a fantasy world after his wife's death, in which he believes he is Sherlock Holmes, which is completely unimportant because they had never really even seen the film when they decided to go with the name. They just liked the sound of it. The uh, the I I will say that uh, you know it's actually kind of. The, the title of the movie is a reference to uh, Don Quixote. Yes. Who was til- you know, tilted at windmills because they might be giants. They might be, yes, exactly. And, uh, and, you know, in a way, Don Quixote is like the first irony, I guess. It's the first, like, mm-hmm. kind of snide, like, dark satire in the Western canon. Right. Uh, and so it's, it was, it's a, just a weird little uh, uh, synergy that they happened to pick it. Now their second show is called is referred to in They Might Be Giants fan lore as the Legendary Twenty Three Show. Linnell says it was uh, January twenty third. We played twenty three songs, although we had only planned to do twenty two. There were twenty three people at that show. We each made twenty three dollars. I was twenty three at the time. Perfect. So they might be giants. All of these things are just so they might be giants. Um. And so this is actually the point where Dial a Song ha- starts, which is crazy to me. I thought that that was something they did later in they, their career. Well, they have done later. Oh, yeah. I'm, I mean, they've done it all throughout their career. But I can't believe how early they were doing Dial a Song. And now, if you're not familiar with Dial a Song, I will tell the tale. Sit down, children, around the campfire. Imagine, Stop crying, Billy. Imagine a world where phones weren't in your pocket, but they were literally <laughs> bolted to the wall and you couldn't move them because they were owned by the American Telegram and Telephone Corporation. And there were cords that connected the two pieces together and they would get all tangled and it was super annoying. Okay. And if your fucking mom needed to talk to her work friend, guess what? No internet for the night. Okay. And you can't talk to Sally and and pretend you know pretend you're just friends, but secretly you just want to say something. Just do something, Holden. Just say something. Just say how you feel. Show confidence. No, no, Holden. Don't leave a really cryptic away message from a song lyric that you like. <laughs> She'll get the message. <laughs> so John Flansburg's apartment gets robbed really bad, and John Linnell around the same time breaks his wrist in a bike accident. And at this point, they really don't want to lose momentum. So as a way to circumvent this and continue to make music, they started Dial-A-Song using Flansburg's home phone line. You could call 718-387-6962, and an answering machine would play back a song via a cassette tape. That it was just cons- their outgoing message. It was just their outgoing message from an answering machine, which, you, which, which by the way, if you're not familiar, <laughs> there were answering machines that would pick up. Now, this is not different, but before voicemail, you had to get an actual machine, and those machines would uh, record your message on a cassette tape. So they were able to make home recordings and then use that cassette tape as their answering machine uh, uh, outgoing message. Which is super fun because that Very means cool. that only one person at a time can hear the new They Might Be Giant song. Uh-huh. It means that they have to turn over material very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the weird limitations of the telephone at the time meant that uh, certain notes and certain sounds would get muddled because literally the sound quality of an old telephone was so bad. The range of a lot of They Might Be Giant songs are very focused in the middle. Uh, part of that is uh, Linnell has actually said that he doesn't like overwhelming like tinny highs and like and just rumbly lows. He thinks that it like detracts from the core of the song. And part of it is they need all these songs that they wrote during this time period needed to be able to be uh, legible over the audio recording. Uh, not only that, but they had to 
literally avoid certain notes because the way old telephones would work, if the phone or the machine heard a sustained note in a, in a certain key, the electronics would assume that they were like either trying to dial a new number or that was the key to like, you know, because after the beep, leave a message after the beep. So if like one of their songs went like, and you'll know me, like that would stop the tape and they would start rewinding everything. <laughs> so uh, if you listen to a lot of early Dallas songs, they actually have to like do weird staccatos and do all these like workarounds. It's it's hmm. the classic thing of limitations breeds innovation. Yes, constantly I'm learning this lesson while doing this show, always. And I think that in a big way because, uh, and we, we're going to circle around back to this when we get to this point in the chronology, but you know, it's not until they get a major studio uh, label that they start pushing them to form a full band. And arguably, their music kind of, at least in popularity, declines after that point. I think having the limitation of the drum machine and the experimentation really helped them just be as the most creative and interesting. Not that their music gets like markedly worse later on or anything like that, but I do feel like people really liked what they hear in these first handful of albums and I think that's because of those limitations personally. We're also at a really interesting time for New York City because this is yeah, the 80s. This crazy. is high crime, the downtown art scene as it were. This is like its own we could do a, a whole retrospective on this but like uh, you know, new wave and rock and roll and punk and everything is just kind of melding and blurring. And they're, by the way, they're playing CBGB. Yeah. Like they're playing in in this. They're in the scene. They're mm-hmm. in the East Village. They're they're doing. They're like up in it. And not only that, but they kind of. I, it's sad. My only analogy for this is uh, comedy, but I feel like every like uh, every two years or so, there's a new comedian that kind of comes up who like is doing something so interesting and so like simple to pull off that like they get booked all the time because it breaks up the the kind of monotony of a stand-up show mm-hmm. i'm thinking like reggie watts when he was first starting sure, in new york sure was, even uh, kind of murder fist a little bit in that yeah. sense like we we fit we got booked a lot just because we were a rally ass sketch group that was just doing something different that you could really break up your your normal ish stand-up show and but reggie with, watts as well with the with he had his own drum machine and would get up and play music and just totally brought this complete utter vibe to your show and it was so much fun and to because watch. it was just the two of them and a drum machine with Flansburg on guitar and Linnell this was this was actually a very key thing he was on accordion which meant that he could get up from behind the synth you know the keyboard table and actually like rock out a little and uh he says that like uh they might be giants might actually have never gone off the ground if he was a lame nerd with a keytar that like the accordion brought again this weird analog energy that set them apart uh they had a legendary run of shows at this downtown venue called uh was it Dorinka which mm. is uh was this like kind of half vaudeville half like drag half like art star kind of freaky deaky place and they became like kind of the house band there and so they had this reputation they were getting booked and they weren't they weren't the cool band they weren't the sexy band but they were definitely like a valuable part of this scene and it was uh, another the same scene that like gave birth to Madonna yeah. and like gave birth to all these other like you know stadium filling uh acts also as a quick side note uh I I was fascinated to find out that CBGB was not unlike the structure of like UCB um, and how they do comedy groups and stuff like that. Like you had to do an audition, which would get you a Monday night or Tuesday night gig. And then if enough people showed up at that gig, you would graduate to the next gig, which would be like a Friday night gig and, and on and on. And you would, you, they had a whole system 
that that I didn't realize. I, you know, you think CBGB, you think chaos, punk, experimental. Mm. They're just doing crazy shit. They're all over the place. But no, they were actually like just as much of a system as like these improv houses mm. and all these places that you look at is over like almost overly structured and too uh, overbearing on on the art. No, mm. that was actually kind of the way it always works. Was or at least ends up working with stuff like that. Anyways, a couple more things about the dial a song. This is actually based on dial a prayer, which is a Christian phone service that you could call to hear inspirational messages. Also done through an answering machine, and um, they they would advertise the dial a song as a person in the personal section of the Village Voice, and they didn't want to get into trouble for not uh, for it not being a commercial ad, which was probably what they were felt like they were supposed to do. So they actually kept the name of the band off of these ads. So this was just like a random, like, call this number, hear his song. And uh, it, would, it would actually, technologically, they would have to stop around like the mid-2000s. And we'll leave it for now. But mm. but they it went for fucking years. They were doing this for years. In high school, I would I would call the number and like I would often get a busy signal and be like, shit, guess, guess I got to try later. Wow, that's crazy. Or maybe eighth grade. Now I'm saying. You know, like, I whatever. love that, though. They, but you you use the service. You would, yeah. you would listen to stuff. That's awesome. What a cool novel idea. That's such a, such a great element to the They Might Be Giant story. Hey, everybody. Holden here. And today I want to talk to you about Quip. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers that was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. People brush too hard, and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. That's why Quip employs sensitive sonic vibrations that are gentle enough on your sensitive gums. Plus, new brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. Did you know that three out of four of us use bristles that are old, worn out, and ineffective? Avoid that problem entirely with Quip. Honestly, I've been using Quip for months now and have never looked back. I finally brushed my teeth for the proper amount of time with Quip's built-in two-minute timer. It's incredibly easy to use and a great way to end and start my day. That's why I love Quip and why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com forward slash wizard right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash wizard. So, they released several homemade demos from 1984 to 1986, but their first official release recording was a two-track EP called The Wiggle Diskette, which contained demos of Everything Right Is Wrong Again and You'll Miss Me, both of which appear on their first official full-length album, of which a thousand copies were made. The uh, Wiggle Disc, uh, so affectionately named, because it was uh, printed on the Flexi Disc format, mm. which was an extra floppy phonograph record that would usually be used for promotional purposes uh you know it, they were cheap to press basically so their first full-length studio recorded demo tape was made after hours at the past studio in new york and they would distribute the tapes at concerts and by mail order but miraculously this album is reviewed by michael small in people magazine oh do you have the copy of this uh of the actual review yeah yeah no do you have it i, I have them talking about talk it talk about it well while you attempt to search for this this review i will say uh uh give you a couple of quotes from the guys about uh, this happening this is a major turning point for them i mean the fact that this went down is again like a total miracle Linnell says, at the time, it seemed crazy. It was just a little, little paragraph. But the fact that we were unsigned and had not released any albums and they reviewed the cassette, it was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and Flansburg says, 
The guy who wrote the article, he was a fan from downtown who had seen the band a lot. He was really confident that something was going to happen with us. He was passionate about it. We had the luck of a lot of people feeling like they wanted to be advocates for us. It's a weird thing to sort of be a professional underdog. And I think that is so perfect for their story. And I re- that resonates with me a lot. But yes, I think They Might Be Giants, always this this underdog um, aesthetic. Uh, there was a lot going against them. Uh, Flansburg, in an interview I listened to, talks about how literally the, it was the policy of the New York Times not to review shows that happened below 14th Street. Wow. So the fact that the downtown scene got this shout out in a major publication is incredibly, uh, I got, I have it. It's, uh, this pop rock duo is bound for greater glory. Flansburg 26 and Linnell write and perform songs that are just wacky and theatrical enough to make them sound like unlike any other band. Yet the songs are conventional enough that anyone can hum along. Flansburg and Linnell championed the Ogden Nash school of lyric writing. The words are nonsense, yet still a lot of fun. In Youth Culture Killed My Dog, they sing, <laughs> the hip hop and the white funk just blew away my puppy's mind. <laughs> So they end up getting the attention that they needed to get signed with Bar None Records. This is an indie label out of Hoboken, New Jersey, started by a man named Tom Pendergast. And uh, Pendergast, rather. And They Might Be Giants, actually the second group ever signed on the label. But they would end up giving many artists their first big start, such as Yola Tango, 10,000 Maniacs, and Of Montreal. So this is this is where it's interesting because They Might Be Giants is kind of this transition band from like new wave and downtown art kind of rock to the burgeoning world of alternative. Right. Which is like, you know, grungier, rockier nirvana basically yeah and they kind of are smack dab in the middle there which makes it uh so they're they're cool as a computer but also dark and scratchy it's very nice totally totally so their first studio album they might be giants also known as the pink album was released on november 4th 1986 and flansburg and linnell are shocked when one of the songs Put your hand inside the puppet head ends up playing on MTV again. They're just like, how the fuck is this happening? We're total unknown indie act, and we're well, getting the MTV this attention. Of, we've covered this before. The MTV effect is just the fact that MTV had to fill 24 hours with music videos. So literally, <laughs> anybody that just took the time to make a music video would get their shit on there, as long as it was visually interesting. Well, Flansburg about that had this to say: It made no sense at all. We didn't have anything behind it. We didn't have a publicist. We didn't have a record company. We were the most stoppable force in rock music. I love that phrase. We were the most stoppable force in rock music. But I think back then for a lot of people who were in these weird gatekeeper positions of power, pushing us forward was a way for them to actually have input in what went on in the world. It also helps that, uh, as we covered in our uh, uh, Nicktoons episode, that early MTV uh, was based out of New York, and it was a lot of like very creative, artsy types that mm-hmm. were probably hanging out at their shows. Yeah, completely. So they make one more album with Bar None called Lincoln, which oh, is a great so album. so good. And that has Anna Ng on it, I believe, It right? has Anna Ng, and maybe, you know what, I, I, uh, one of my favorites in their entire canon, uh, They'll Need a Crane, which mm. is... Uh, very rep- like it's oddly repetitive but like there's just this this kind of sadness to the whole thing but relatable the kind of like interlude where it's like uh <laughs> i heard there's a restaurant down the street we can go to the other where the other nightmare people no there's a restaurant down the uh, nightmare people like to go no baby wait <laughs> i didn't mean to say nightmare um 
And people say it might be about like uh, Linnell's parents' divorce, but mm. Lincoln is on a lot of people's top list for like. Yeah, it's uh, strong. It's very you, strong. Especially if you don't want to say flood because it's too obvious. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which we're about to spend a little time talking about flood because that is kind of the album, though. It's in their best selling album. Yeah, and, and it is. It is important. It's an important album in music in general, I think. So after Lincoln, they get signed to Elektra Records. Now, this is largely due to a woman named Susan Drew, who had been following the band since 1986 and worked under Elektra's A&R department and got them major creative control. Uh, by the way, A&R never knew what that stood for, artists and repertoire. Oh, and these are essentially the people that... Are, these are the talent scouts, mm-hmm. essentially. So they end up recording their next album, which would become Flood. Recorded in NYC's Skyline Studios. This is a huge upgrade from what they had been doing before, studio-wise. And they have producers now that are big deal producers. They have uh, uh, especially Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley, who did some of the biggest songs on the album. These these are producers who have done albums for Morrissey, Elvis Costello. They did uh, Bush, 16 Stone. They did all these, you know, all these like high profile albums. Flansburg said... We had never been in an actual real multi-track studio before. We had been in an eight-track studio run by a friend of ours that was essentially a demo place. But I didn't know anything about how to make a real record. Uh, Langer and Win Stanley approach production the way that we approach songwriting. That is, we let the song take us in whatever direction it seems to want to go. And from what I've experienced with music, that is definitely the kind of producer you want. Someone who's going to get what you're laying down and just go with the flow and not try to box it in, not try to make it anything specific but like explore and discover the music as you go. So that I love hearing that. Also, I would be remiss to uh, if I didn't state that a lot of these quotes I pulled are from a fantastic Spin Magazine article that you can find online where uh, they essentially talk about every single album they made, Mm -hmm. album by album, and it's fantastic. I loved it and uh, used a lot of stuff from that. So, of course, the big hits we already talked about, Birdhouse in Your Soul, Particle Man, Istanbul, not Constantinople, um, the latter of which was a cover of the 1953 novelty song performed by the Four Lads. Don't listen to it. It's very disappointing if you love the They Might Be Giants version. <laughs> it's just way slower and way just less, way more underwhelming. Also, those like uh, <laughs> Birdhouse in Your Soul, We Want to Rock, Your Racist Friend, and Istanbul, those four tracks yeah. took up two-thirds of the album's budget. Yes. And it is, and like, especially when Istanbul goes into like full, like, high fifth gear it is just a wall of awesome sounds Flansburg says about Istanbul this song I knew from my childhood and we learned it simply to have more songs in our repertoire it was in the show for a couple of years and John and I would perform without the drum machine it had a very spaced out middle section where we would basically yodel into an echo effect and it it all went very very trippy it always got a good response and then we got our fancy Casio FZ1 samplers this track was one of the things we put together to test it out and uh, yeah, it's amazing, and it's probably their most recognizable work besides "Birdhouse of Your in Your Soul," rather, which Linnell says about this song. The melody and chords were cooked up years earlier, and the lyrics had to be shoehorned in to match the melody, which explains why the words are so oblique. That makes so much sense. Like I said, trying to karaoke this song is very difficult because of the way that the words are shoehorned into the song. Into there, also, I should note, Luke and Ari in the Alibi Light Switch. 
Uh, also, I should note at a little over three minutes, this song changes keys 18 times, which uh, is fucking nuts. Marie is classically trained in music, and she was like, it, it's not a key change, it modulates. And it I was modulates? like, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. The look in her, because Marie had no experience with They Might Be Giants. Oh, really? And so I was playing some of the hits for her, and she just was like blank faced because. And I've heard this a lot, actually. There's, uh, I was listening to a lot of like uh, review podcasts, and I've been listening to like a lot of uh, critics. And there seems to be this through line that the partner, if your partner is musically trained enough to know exactly when they fall flat and when they're just repeating stuff and when they're like hitting weird notes or when they're just like using a like a very repeatable riff they just like dead face they do not like feel the the magic <laughs> and like the, and but like the genuine look of confusion and weirdness when she's like so what is this song about i'm like a nightlight <laughs> with like pure sincerity in yes. my eyes like this is my favorite song it's about a nightlight <laughs> so of course as we it was a rough night it was a rough night I'm not gonna lie as we mentioned before it I was, love you Marie it was Tiny Toons Adventures that really broke them uh, out on a huge level for so many kids now Electra Records was a subsidiary of Warner Music yes and so it was absolutely like just perfect corporate synergy that their songs ended up getting used for this they had nothing to do with the decision they had nothing to do with the actual creation of the animations and the fact that like I think there's like one part in Istanbul where they actually like kind of animate Plucky Duck and uh and and Hamlet as like the two Johns but that's like based even even uh Buster Bunny at one point in the episode is like they might be giants. Who the hell are these guys? <laughs> not whatever, but yeah. Like even like even in the universe of the show, the writers were like, I don't know why we're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but it really helped them greatly. And I, I that is why for me, they might be giants seemed like this weird thing that I didn't realize was attributed to an actual band with Istanbul and everything. I thought that this was just like an old classic song that everybody just knew and like sang in school or something, which is completely untrue. After this, they come out with Apollo 18, which we already mentioned. It's space-themed. It has the song Fingertips, which is actually, I think I said 18 separate tracks earlier. It's actually 21 separate tracks made to be played on a CD player on Shuffle. And uh, it also, this album also gets them named Musical Ambassadors for International Space Year, which is such a fucking They Might Be Giants thing. So kudos to them for doing another They Might Be Giants So much thing. of their career is just deeply affecting the hearts of nerds and having those nerds wanting to return the love. And it's Electra Records who are really urging them to form a band that, hey, get off these drum machines, stop doing this DIY stuff, get a band together and really blow open the sound. And so they oh. did. They they formed their uh, a band for their live show consisting of Kurt Hoffman, which is from a band called The Ordinaires, on reeds and keys, as well as Tony Maimon, who played for a uh, bass for Pere Ubu, which is like a huge punk act that everyone should check out, and drummer uh, Jonathan Feinberg. I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> That's from Fingertips, right? That was yeah. one of my favorite uh, bits from Fingertips. Actually. I don't understand you. I don't understand you. I don't understand. <laughs> it's so good. I love Fingertips. So, John Henry is their next Leave album. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. <laughs> I Pal Jeremiah is my favorite song off that album. 
so so their next album is John Henry, and that is in 1994. And this is when Hold they go. It. Do full you know band. why it was called John Henry? Well, because there's an old folk tale about John Henry, a steel driver that was competed against a steam powered machine and won. And uh, this is essentially their nod to the fact that they used to be this electronic based band with using drum machines and stuff. And now they're using a full on band they, they went from, you know, uh, they went, they went full analog essentially with this, with this new band. People always point to John Henry as being like this inspirational story. John Henry dies super hard in that yeah, story. He definitely dies. Like the point of that story isn't like, ah, yes, man's dead. It's like, no robots will win. <laughs> and uh, they get Paul Fox to produce it, who did albums for Bjork, 10,000 Maniac, and Maniacs, and arguably the best Fish album, Hoist. Flansburg says about John Henry, John Henry was kind of the beginning of the end for us with Elektra. The thing about those situations is that it's never a surprise to find out the label isn't digging it. All the people who were boosters of the band, uh, in which especially Susan Drew, who I mentioned earlier, uh, had just departed but and left the company. And bringing in Paul Fox was kind of a way to help the record company in, be engaged because they had big success with him in 10,000 Maniacs. He definitely worked the old school producer angle of mediating between the bands and listening to the record company's concerns. He just wanted to figure out how to make a hit. So they end up just struggling with the record label. The album is very much trying to traditionally make a hit for them, which is not the way that this band works. That's just not what they do. Even their hits, like... Birdhouse in Your Soul and Istanbul are very odd songs mm-hmm. that uh, I think that a producer trying to get a hit for them would not necessarily be able to detect. Like if they had this guy working with them on Flood, I don't think he would notice those as hits, you know, as potential hits. I mean, this was uh, the alternative rock was big in a big way and they were just trying to make them fit into a more like uh, serious box that I don't think they could fit in. And so uh, as legend has it, during a short tour in Japan, Elektra asked them to do a small production promotional coffee house gig and they said they didn't want to do it when the, uh they they needed some rest and when they got off the train uh, station in japan a rep was waiting for them to take them to the gig and they refused and this was the moment that they broke away from electra so now they are back to being the indie group that they always needed to be and now they're kind of they're making albums but what's most interesting is at this point, probably because of Tiny Toons, probably just because there's enough nerds now making TV shows mm-hmm. that loved their music, but they end up doing a ton of TV music work and movie TV work. They end up uh, contributing the song Dr. Evil on the Austin Powers soundtrack. They do the opening theme for the animated show The Oblongs on the WB. They do the theme for Disney Channel's Higgly Town Heroes. They even did songs about Dexter's Laboratory and Courage the Cowardly Dog. Oh, God. Eustace Muriel. (laughs) I don't even know this. Somebody get the door. (laughs) Who's going to get the door? We have access to these clips. I don't know why I'm singing throughout this entire episode. (laughs) It's better this way. Also, the cowardly dog. probably the biggest one, though, is you're not the boss of me now. <laughs> you're not the boss of me now. You're not the boss of me now. And you're not so. Is it tough? Big. Big. They Life did the, is unfair. They did the Malcolm in the Middle theme song that won them a Grammy in 2002. Many of their songs are used in the show. I think that song is so identifiable. It's like. Honestly, we talk about Birdhouse and Your Soul and all that stuff, but I think Boss of Me is one of the most 
recognizable, probably the most recognizable oh, yeah. song of all. They also did the interstitial, like they also did background music, like the again this like transient in between stage between kid and full like teen. For some reason, they're very it, it resonates very well. They nail and it. It's the exact energy of the show, Malcolm in the Middle. Uh-huh. Um, we skipped over one of my favorite albums that they did, which is Factory Showroom, ah, uh, yes. which has a bunch of amazing uh, songs. Uh, Till my head falls off is incredibly good. Uh, James K. Polk, another one. I fucking love how many like obscure educational songs they end up throwing in there yeah. about like just names and figures and places that Completely. like. That you just kind of like that stick with you and like in casual conversation or while watching Jeopardy with friends, you get to know the answer to. And they're like, <laughs> what the fuck? Why do you know that? Um, XTC versus Adam Ant is good. Oh, oh, OK. This we have to play. Uh, Metal Detector is so fucking good. I just it's like just that perfect balance of like goofy energy and then like weird dark menace is so amazing. Let's hear it. Down at the shore, there's a place where there's no one vacation. There's just the sound of the call of the wild overcoming the fear of the unknown And I've got something to help you understand Something waiting there beneath the sand My metal detector is with me all of the time I'm the inspector over the mind Alright, and... Oh, and Exquisite Dead Guy. <laughs> and it, fuck, Factory Showroom was such a good album. So uh, also around this time, they do it. I feel like this is a little too much. Uh, this, this gets a little eye-rolly, but um, for writer Dave Edgar's literary journal, Timothy McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, they did a collaboration in which the band wrote a theme song for the journal as well as 44 songs to be accompanied with the uh, edition, the sixth edition of the journal called They Might Be Giants versus McSweeney's. I think um, I had that. It is, yeah. Is it? Is it good? It just is so like, oh my god. Well, oh, I mean, literary journal. And- Dave, uh, Sarah Val, Dave Eggers, Ira Glass. That entire resurgent. We're in the two thousands, I guess, by now. Right. So yeah, the all the all the eighties kids and all the nineties kids that like finally entered into their own, embraced They Might Be Giants in a big way. This is, I feel like, their their second like height, I guess. And like they've since tapered off from there, but there was a big moment where like just the love for they might be giants and they kind of got their moment in the spotlight after working for all those years. Uh-huh. The, Oh, you know what we didn't mention amongst their many well-known TV gigs, the fucking daily show theme song. Yeah. I actually remember like in, I think the last episode of the daily show for the year 1999, like they actually recorded uh, a version of I can hear you. I think it's the name of the song on an Edison wax cylinder, like in front of John Stewart. I just, it was like oddly quiet and like contemplative. Hmm. It was, it was, it was fascinating. I, I, so many memories. This is what, this is why we can't do episodes about things I care about. <laughs> I just fucking regress. <laughs> Uh, they were also, of course, the first major label recording artist to release an entire album, Long Tall Weekend, over the internet via MP3 format. Flansburg says that's it, huge. Yeah, that is it's crazy. Huge. That's by the way, that is crazy. Like that is that on, is not not on iTunes. Like again, yeah. this is pre iTunes. This is pre iPod. Yeah. They were like, we're gonna go to fucking emusic.com 
and we're gonna f- I remember like having to like figure out a PayPal account and uh-huh. like beg my parents for their credit card and if you if, try convincing an adult human being during the 56k modem era to put your credit card in a computer yeah totally <laughs> it was like pulling teeth about this Flansburg said I was very surprised that mp3 became the package you know in the grand tradition of the 8 track and the cassette it was like fidelity meant nothing convenience meant everything but it was something that we were just free to do it was kind of a rarities record but it made a big splash just because of the format of it which was a preamble for us knowing that just putting something out in a different way can garner so much more attention than what the music's doing um and in 2001 they signed with Restless Records, who did albums for Danzig, Mazzy Star, and Ween. And they put out their first new studio album since 1996 with Mink Carr. Oh, so good. And Flansburg about this says, this is one of the uh, fucked stories for They Might Be Giants. But then, as everyone now basically knows, the album was released on 9-11. And within a week, the record company that financed it was completely out of business. It wasn't just bad, it disappeared. It ceased to exist. After a lot of work, all of a sudden, records were not going to be manufactured. It had become invisible. Months after 9-11, that shadow was still over people's life choices. We did a sold-out show in San Francisco where about one quarter of the people in the audience, it was a seated show, just didn't show up. They had already bought tickets to the show before 9-11, and then they didn't show up. What a crazy time that that must have been, and unbelievable that they released it on 9-11. So they hit another kind of uh, stitch here in their career. And this is when they go into kids' albums. It was inevitable. It was uh, so inevitable. Mink, like, Mink Carr, by the way, has some great tracks, too. Uh, Man, It's So Loud in Here was one of my favorites. Uh-huh. Uh, definitely kept my spirits up after America, uh, you know, had to stand strong. Um, along with the titular song, uh, Mink Carr and Bangs, which is just, like, almost a perfect, like, they Might Be Giants down the middle uh, ditty. It's so obvious if you start listening to a lot of They Might Be Giants that, in fact, their first album, since it had a very um, cartoonish-looking cover, a lot of people mistook it for a kid's album. Mm-hmm. They, you know, from the very beginning, people were associating it with, with that. And I, I know for a fact, like, if and when I have kids, like, I will so be getting all of these They Might mm-hmm. Be Giants albums because it's a nice way for parents. It's definitely one of those entities that is kind of like what I hear about uh, My Little Pony a little bit, where it's like, it's like if you're going to have to be constantly <laughs> listening to kids' music or watching kids' TV shows, this is a good one to go with because it won't make you completely insane. Like, mm-hmm. they're just the writing of, of it, the, you know, everything. It just it won't make you nuts. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's just got a certain quality to it. And so they release their first children's album in 2002 titled No! Exclamation point on Rounder Records, which focused actually on American Roots music. They had uh, Alison Krauss and Bella Fleck and Steve Martin. Kind of banjo bluegrass Oh my god, Bella Fleck. I haven't heard that name in forever. Dude, I was way into Bella Who Fleck. Who wasn't? It was fucking great music to get high to. Uh, so I uh, this is what Linnell had to say about getting into kids' music. I learned this anecdotally from a lot of people that what we were doing, a lot of people thought it was appropriate to play for their kids amongst the things in their record collection. That started pretty early on, even as much as we thought we were investigating the darkest and weirdest territories of adult subjects. It's funny to me, the thing about Particle Man is that we had heard this recording of like school children singing, and then you notice there is this line, does he totally feel worthless? And it sounds really jarring coming out of a kid's (laughs) mouth. So they were able to pull all of their darker themes out 
and just keep the same song stylings. And really, it worked out great for them. Linnell says, there's a thing about doing music for kids. I love this quote, by the way, and I think everyone needs to hear this. This is so fucking important to me. Uh, there's a thing about doing music for kids where you are in this extremely privileged posi- position of introducing types of music to kids who have never heard them before. We gave ourselves that freedom on no, just like just to do like a total funk track or whatever. I don't think that's a particularly controversial thing to do, but at the time it, w- it also seemed like we were going out on a limb by not doing songs that were in any way remedial. We're not trying to educate or improve children at all. That's actually not the quote. I have a different, better quote. <laughs> Fantastic. So this is the quote from Flansburg that I think everybody needs to hear. That's kind of piggybacks off of that one. When you're making a kid's album, if you tell anyone, you get into a lot of conversations about how kids like things like dinosaurs. If you get beyond that, they'll tell you that's great because it doesn't even have to be good. And that made us feel so weird that it turned into a passion project for us to make something of the highest quality. If it's going to be something that's part of somebody's childhood, then it can be something that echoes a long time. I think that's so important, and I think I see so much, like if I'm at a friend's house and they have kids programming on, I mean, so much of it is fucking hot trash, and you think to yourself- In the YouTube era, it's degraded it, to total poison. Awful, and and this is like, this is what your kids who are going to grow up and be you know functioning human, I know that it looks like they, it's not sinking in, but it is, and it's so important that we make quality products for children. Oh, I mean, now I'm going to cry again like the Jim Henson episode. Uh, Unbelievable. So they also released their first book for kids called Bed, 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 which came with an EP to accompany it. And No is so strong that it leads to a collaboration with Walt Disney Records. uh, And they're given complete creative control. They're putting out a CD and DVD released separately called Here Come the ABCs. Then they move on to Here Come the 123s and Here Comes Science. um, And those were released in 2005, 2008, and 2009, respectively. ABCs and 123s both went gold for the band. And they got a Grammy for Here Come the 123s. I mean, hugely successful for them, this whole foray into children's music. Uh, here come the science is also amazing. Uh, the Ele- meet the elements is a fantastic song, even without the actual educational content. Yeah, e eats everything is something I remember. Uh, mm. Another thing that's happening while all, while all these albums and all these projects are going on is they are maintaining a huge presence online. Their yeah. website is constantly being updated. They're they, releasing like little apps and they like formed their own record company in 2002, Idlewild uh, Recordings. They, uh, after a tour to support their album, The Spine, in 2004, which is a great, strong album. Very, very strong. uh, The band announces an extended hiatus to work on other projects. Flansburg produces an off-Broadway musical written by his wife called People Are Wrong. They start releasing a podcast featuring rarities, demos, previously unreleased studio tracks, and sometimes songs and poems from other artists. This was actually started in 2005 and is still running today, but in a very They Might Be Giants fashion. It's completely irregular. Mm -hmm. And I think, was it 05? There was one year where they were really good about it. They were like every single week they released um, an album. That was in in 05. They released a project as a CD DVD set that was a song for each venue they played oh, at. Oh, That's I a fucking loved venue songs. That's a different thing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, this was in 2015. They resurrect dial a song with a new song released every Tuesday for a year, which led to three albums from the 52 songs that they put out, which is an incredibly ambitious project. They released Glean in 2015 as well. Um, but yeah, venue songs, such a cool idea. Every venue they play. I, that seems to me like they would have played 
too many venues to do that. But I mean, the the final track listing isn't every song they made. Or, okay. You know, so they would like, you know, if it was just a shitty ditty that they had to like just put out the door because they did committed to this, then it didn't make the album. But like all these albums, uh, there's just tons of video content that is also coming out because of the kind of weird DIY underground alternative aesthetic that they've always been working with illustrators animators filmmakers uh the homestar runner guys yeah like, they had a collaboration with they're just constantly doing so they did a whole they did a uh contributed 14 songs to a dunkin donuts campaign they're just everywhere <laughs> he tells one interesting story about how uh i think it was flansburg it could have been linnell was like coming walking into his lobby and the security guy was like flipping the channels on the TV and it went from like Daily Show to Malcolm in the Middle to like a Dunkin' Donuts commercial they did a song for it and it was like, oh my God, us, us. Uh, like we have we have just taken over the television with our music. It's um, crazy. There's just like a wide, ver- basically if you're an artist who like can put something together for a couple of grand, you might have worked on a They Might Be Giants project. <laughs> they got a little bit of flack because so much of that is based on like contests and auditions and like, like you know, but the fan base is so passionate that like they want to work with these guys. So what's cool too is if you check out their more recent albums like The Edge or Join Us, which actually becomes the band's highest charting album, peaking at number 32. That's more about the state of album sales and not about the state <laughs> of the popularity. That's true. But um, I will say it's kind of nice that they got the opportunity to make the kids' music mm-hmm. its own thing because now their studio albums are like fully more fully a dark adult mm-hmm. content. So you can get kind of your either or on it. It's not as mixed in, which I like. You get some unfiltered, more adult oriented. They might be giants with with that stuff. The Edge is a great album, by the way, and uh, I like Fun. Their 20th studio album was released in January of 2018, after which they toured across North America and Europe throughout the year. And that pretty much brings us up to date at this point. 20 studio albums, at just an unbelievably prolific amount of songs. See them live if you ever have the chance. Yeah. They put on a have fantastic- you, how many, Have you seen them? Oh, multiple times. How many times have you seen them? Uh, at the height, again, of their 2000s resurgence- they uh i must have seen them like five times wow. but and this is kind of sad is i never like lost my love of them i kind of just stopped listening to new music yeah <laughs> like, it's a little me kind of me too a little bit it's <laughs> at around lie. it's been a fun excuse to just do a deep dive into a band because i haven't done that in a minute you know like yeah, around 2015 like my commute was just like i i listened to podcasts on my commute and that is my audio entertainment. Yeah. Or if I'm working, I just listen to like shitty chip tunes mixes on YouTube. Oh, no, Jake, don't or, do that. Or uh, <laughs> I just listen to a lot of stuff I've always listened to now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but I've gotten lazy. You know, the algorithms have made us lazy. I mean, when even when I go on Spotify, most of the time I just go straight to the playlist that Spotify generated for me mm-hmm. based off of what I've listened to in the past. And they're wholly similar playlist. And I just I throw it on and I don't have to think about it you don't have to keep track you don't have to like go to the switch it up or find a think of a different band to put on i just just, get to watch you get to wash your dishes and be like oh i guess lizzo has a new single yeah move on with your life and it's it's sad it's a little sad and i think that 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 i need to make more of an effort in today's modern age to experience songs and you know do the kind of fun stuff like dial a song you know and that sort of thing and really discover what artists are doing that's exciting today um i do have a, a fun quote to finish us out i think we're rounding out our episode here but you mentioned in the very beginning of the episode about how it's this lighthearted music with themes of dread death and disappointment all throughout and this is what flansburg had to say about all that 
We've thought about it a lot, and although it's hard to sum up, part of what makes it work is that melody and music making, in general, is so life-affirming that it seems to immunize everyone from the initial meaning of even the most dire lyric. It's like the catharsis is baked into the song-making. Songs that go to darker topics don't feel so dire as they might seem on paper. I mean, a song like The Microphone makes some of the saddest statements a song could make, but there is a bit of humor in the kind of impossibility of the words. Combined with the prettiness of the track, it makes something that seems more joyous than down, which I think is a really cool way to look at it and and very No one in the world ever gets what they want, and that is beautiful. Everybody dies frustrated and sad, and that is beautiful. <laughs> they want what they're not, and I wish they would stop saying, Deputy Dog Dog a Ding Ding Didipod, Deputy Dog Dog a Ding Ding Dippy <laughs> And I think that's where we'll end it. Thank you so much for listening to our episode about They Might Be Giants. Um, it's like David Bowie, but instead of like realizing that you're uh, gender fluid, it's that you're kind of a dork. <laughs> <laughs> they taught me it was okay to be who I was. <laughs> yep. I, I, fantastic shit. And with that, I will say, if you'd like to support us further, check out patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do bonus content every single week for just $5 a month, and it really helps us keep the show going. Yeah, Everybody's support really means the world to us. Also, check out more of my stuff if you want. Holdnators Ho on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Holdnators Ho. Jake? Follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung, and uh, check out dropout.tv. Uh, it's a video platform where uh, the show I work on, Cartoon Hell, uh, premieres a new episode every week. So uh, you, you, you probably like it. And hey, always remember, keep on bruising. And never stop whizzing. Is it the other way around? I, I think we switch it up every week just like we do the intro now. Okay. Because <laughs> I can't keep track of anything. Consistency is our enemy. <laughs> This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.